to get to the truth of the matter about export controls and why they're so critical to our foreign policy and national security, we have with us Emily Benson, who is the director of the CSIS Project on Trade and Technology. Emily is one of my favorite people at CSIS, and I'm very excited to have her on the podcast today. Emily, welcome. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. I feel like this is kind of the apex of my time at CSIS, is making it on your podcast. So I'm very <laughs> excited. I feel very honored to be here. Well, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about this new project you're directing? It's really important to what we're doing at CSIS, and it's fascinating. So tell us a little bit about what it's all about. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think to a degree, we're still figuring that out. But we are a female-led program that focuses on technology and trade. And what that basically means is semiconductors, export controls, emerging technology. And we evolved a little bit out of Bill Ranch's Shoal Chair in International Business. And it was actually really great. The leadership here at CSIS thought that we should have a dedicated team that focused on some of these cross-programmatic issues. And so we're relatively new. We got stood up over the summer and we're here today to talk about our first major report. So it's kind of an exciting time for our lean team. Emily, you're the author of a new report called Establishing a New Multilateral Export Control Regime. For our listeners that are not well-versed, what is a multilateral export control regime and how is it created? Yeah, so there are four multilateral export control regimes and export controls at their core are trade tools that regulate and restrain the outflow of items that can be used in a way that is adverse to national security interests, meaning international peace and stability overall. So one of them is called the Nuclear Suppliers Group. I think that one is kind of self-explanatory. There's another on missiles, ChemBio. The one that we talk about in our report is the one that's been most prominent in the news recently, and that's the Vassanar arrangement. And this covers military items, but primarily dual-use goods. And those are things that can be used in a military context or also a civilian context. So think of things like a chip that's used in your phone, but that could also be used by a foreign military. And this is a little bit different because sometimes it can be harder to reach a consensus on what's a military versus a civilian good. The Vassanar arrangement was stood up in the aftermath of the dissolution of the USSR. And there have been some pretty profound questions recently about whether or not it's still the right way to go about governing export controls. And so that was one of the questions we attacked in our report. You talk about this Vassanar arrangement. Explain how the arrangement relates to the future of export controls in the U.S., so part of the utility of multilateral export controls is that you really can't do this stuff on your own. So if you say, hey, I'm going to restrict the sales of my semiconductors to a foreign country, maybe they can just turn around and get it from another country. And so at the end of the day, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot because there's foreign availability of a like product. And so what that means is that you have to get your allies who are producers of high-grade technology to march in the same direction on these controls so that the country in question can't just backfill. They can't just get stuff from somewhere else. And so the utility of the Vassanar arrangement has been to get everyone to the table, it's 42 members, to come up with a list that says, hey, these are the things that we agree could be used in both the military and civilian context. And it's non-binding, so it's not a treaty-based organization. It's not hard law. 
but it's like a standard in some ways, but a little bit more teeth than that, where countries agree on these lists, and then they go back to their home countries, and they make licensing changes. What's really interesting here is that most countries are tied more or less to the Vosnar arrangement, but the U.S. has some unilateral capabilities that allows it to exceed what is listed under Vosnar. And this has come up a lot in the chip context in the last couple of years. And so where some countries really only do what Vosnar agrees on, the United States can go out and promulgate controls that it thinks are necessary. And we try to align with the multilateral context, but we don't always do that. So Emily, there's 42 countries involved. What are some of the drawbacks for the 42 countries that are part of this? Any international organization, it's tough to get consensus, and this is a consensus-based organization. Consensus organizations run into problems. You can have one actor who says, hey, I'm not okay with that, and then progress stalls. We've seen this repeatedly in the World Trade Organization, WTO. Potentially the most prominent feature of the Vosnar arrangement in the last couple of years is that Russia is a member. And this is complicated because Russia is in some ways blocking a lot of the updates to the arrangement. And so it's in some ways kind of restraining the ability of partner countries to get together and decide which types of emerging technology are really critical to national security. And so that's bagged a lot of other questions about the suitability of the arrangement overall. It's kind of one of those cases where one problem brings into focus a lot of other problems that have existed for a long time. The other thing I will note that's kind of distinct about the Vosner arrangement is it is inherently about international security. And so it's asking a lot of countries to come submit ideas for what should be controlled because you essentially have to tell other countries what technology you're producing. And that can be very, very sensitive. And so it's sort of a miracle at the end of the day that it exists, but I think it can probably exist in a little bit better of a form. You recommend a new economic and technology security regime in your report. What would this look like and what role could the G7 play in such an arrangement? So when we started this report, pretty much at the kickoff of 2023, we thought that we would focus only on export controls, Russia's role in the Vosnar arrangement, and how this affects emerging technology. However, we had a very successful G7 summit in Hiroshima in May, and that focused a lot on economic security questions and strategies. The European Commission introduced its own economic security strategy in June. Germany followed with the strategy on China in July. So we've seen a lot of momentum on this security, economics, national security nexus. And what we've heard from a lot of G7 countries and non-G7 countries, for that matter, is that export controls are very useful, but they're probably insufficient at the end of the day. And they also incur costs. So if you look at some of the fallout from last year's October 7th export controls, what it's essentially saying is, hey, we want to restrain the level of revenue that you can make in foreign marketplaces because we've made a determination that the benefits of controlling these items outweigh the costs. At the same time, we're asking countries like Japan and the Netherlands to come on board. And we don't really quite have that mechanism to offset some of those costs. And so what we thought at the end of the day is to create kind of a new framework, a new institution that would combine export controls, investment screening, and then supply chain security 
So the idea here is that you use some of these national security trade tools as a prerequisite for deeper cooperation. And then you can work with your partner countries like Korea, Japan, to really scale up advanced technology production. And that that would be sort of a reinforcing mechanism to get on the same page. And so what started out as this very surgical export control idea expanded, I think, to fit the contemporary environment where we don't really have an international institution that does this. You know, the UN can't really do sanctions anymore, at least in an effective format that they used to. The WTO can't adequately confront national security issues. So a lot of folks around Washington, as I'm sure you've heard, including on this podcast, everyone keeps wondering, so what do we do next? And this is our attempt at putting forth an idea for a framework we think is a viable next step. So Emily, the conversation is conveniently occurring around the expansion of the BRICS countries. Is it likely that BRICS's increase in geopolitical power is going to influence this process? Part of the problem is always, who do you include? How do you get buy-in from what we refer to uh, a little problematically as Global South countries? And that's a really good, outstanding question. I'm not sure that I have all of the answers to that. But one thing we discuss in our report is this idea of qualified majority voting, and this gets kind of into the weeds, but the idea would be The more high-grade tech you produce, the larger voting share you get over time. And so we would adjust the G7 parameters for how to join. That would open it up to immediately countries like South Korea and Australia. And then over time, you could see greater buy-in from other countries who may be on the fence about this BRICS versus U.S. and China competition. I also think that we tend to look at the BRICS in Washington as a foregone conclusion. It will succeed. They're expanding. They're getting more folks on board. But I was actually telling a group of students recently, and of course, I was teaching at GW, think about having a dinner party with disparate friend groups and different relatives and you can kind of quickly see how it's really hard to get everyone to sit around a table in a peaceful way and actually deepen cooperation. And I think that could be some of what we see with BRICS. It's a very diverse coalition. And I think what the G7 has going for itself is that there are deep principles that we share in terms of alignment. And that's already a unifying factor. And I think we can build on that with a secretariat and kind of a formalized structure of the G7. Is this something that you view as reaffirming for U.S. global leadership? And if so, how do you see that? So one question that's come up a lot under the Biden administration is, are these technology competition policies essentially U.S.-led? Is the U.S. coercing other countries to follow suit and do what we want? And that's a good question. We have a long, complicated history of doing things like that. So I think that's an honest thing to ask. But what's interesting is, like I alluded to earlier, a lot of countries that are close partners of the United States have made independent determinations about the utility of export controls and the economic security agenda. And so what that means is that if the U.S. or a partner country were to take the lead and establish a new framework, a new institution or organization, that there could be a lot of utility in doing that. That could really help affirm leadership, again, based on this tremendous success that we've witnessed from the G7 and make it permanent. The G7 has this kind of pesky way of putting forth principled statements, and then someone else takes over the presidency and they have a new agenda and it just kind of goes through the cycle. 
And this would be a really great way of recognizing existing successes and using them as a foundation instead of just a starting point for a new cycle. How important is trade and technology to U.S. national security? And why is this such a nuanced discussion? It's really tough because export controls are based on the premise that there is an entity or a country out there that you don't want to have access to your high-grade technology. As I mentioned earlier, it's actually not that easy to figure out what's critical to national security. If you look at the export controls on semiconductors, there's been a lot of debate about who's using what chips and for what purpose. Some of the NVIDIA chips that are making them a ton of revenue in the Chinese market, for example, are used in gaming consoles, but they can also be used to model WMDs. And the percentage of chips being used in these scary military applications is quite small, but the administration has made a determination that even that amount of chips is too many. And so the tension between trade and export controls is how much can you allow to be exported in order to provide your private sector with ample revenue to reinvest in the next generation of technology without endangering national security objectives? What's interesting is if you look at the Dutch example, ASML, the Netherlands is actually an interesting country because they're so small, but they're so mighty when it comes to technology. They have a very robust F-35 program with the U.S., And semiconductor firms make up 20% of the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. That's just an astounding level of revenue gained from chips. Peter Wenning, the head of ASML, which produces these really advanced machines that help generate chips, he has said, look, we're willing to go along with U.S. export controls. We can essentially find alternative marketplaces for our machines. But it's actually not that simple at the end of the day because these machines cost about $150 million per machine. And again, they produce really high-tech stuff that can be used by foreign militaries. And so we have a joint recognition that you can't just allow those to be shipped anywhere. And so the natural pool of countries that we would be comfortable with acquiring these machines is quite low. And I think this is part of what we get at in our study is looking at How do we identify alternative marketplaces? How do we scale up so that we don't lose out on the benefits of trade, but trade looks different and it looks more secure over the long run? I think that's really at the heart of what the administration has repeatedly articulated, especially in remarks from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, is that we're not anti-globalization, we're not anti-trade. It just needs to look different and operate differently because we're in this new geoeconomic era. Is it hard for the administration to convince American businesses of this necessity? I think it's been very hard. And there's really no easy way out of it, because I think a lot of the intelligence that is leading to these policy outcomes is classified. There's only so much that they can share. And so we're all having to kind of trust that they have seen very convincing information that says, oh my gosh, we should restrain these items and we should have maybe done it yesterday. We should have done it sooner. And so that's created a little bit of tension between the private sector and also foreign governments, including in the G7, who keep saying, well, where are the justifications? We need more information. And so we're kind of at a standstill, I think, when it comes to getting the next level of understanding about the controls, especially when we have news breaking about Huawei gaining a seven nanometer chip capability. Who's to blame? There's been a lot of finger pointing. 
But at the end of the day, I think it just comes down to what we know, what we can share. And we have to make decisions based on imperfect information. That's the case in every policy realm. But I'm fairly confident that the administration wouldn't have taken these steps if they did not have really concrete details about national security threats. And the argument that a lot of private sector firms are making is, is that eventually adversary nations like China are going to get access to this technology and or create their own in any event. So why should we limit our ability to profit from you know these lucrative markets? Isn't that what they're saying? It's a great question. And in export control terminology, this is called indigenization. So that would be China pouring a bunch of capital and resources into scaling up their own capabilities that would essentially kick us out of the market anyway. This is their form of de-risking from foreign supply chains. They want to make everything indigenously. That is always a fine line to walk with export controls because you don't want to kick your entire companies out of a foreign market where they need revenue to reinvest. There are a lot of outstanding questions about whether or not China can actually scale up and whether or not they could do it without Western technology. This goes back to one of your earlier questions about foreign availability and multilateralization. And the United States has said, look, we only control so many choke points in the chip supply chain. Thus, we need the Netherlands and Japan to come on board because they also produce items that are inputs that China could use to advance their project. What's interesting here is if you look at the Russia context, we're seeing drones shot down, we crack them open, and there are Western-made semiconductors in these drones. And that's kind of an uncomfortable realization when your own products are being used by a foreign military in a context where you don't want that military to have that capability. And the truth is, at the outset of the Crimea invasion in 2014, we didn't control all chips going to Russia. And so a lot of these transactions were actually permitted at the time. And that's a hard lesson learned in today's context, where we don't want to wake up in 10 years and see, well, maybe we should have done more controls earlier on because we don't want to be advancing a foreign military's capabilities. And so there's some backwards looking element to this policy, but also I think it is inherently a forward-looking policy. De-risking is a concept that's thrown around a lot these days. What does de-risking mean and why are we always talking about it and thinking about it? Yeah, thanks, President Wanderland. Um, <laughs> I joke sometimes that I'm sure the White House is jealous they didn't come up with that term because it's actually a very efficient way of describing some complex policy changes. If you recall, during the Trump administration, the term du jour was decoupling. Decoupling more aligns with kind of this Cold War mentality where you bifurcate the global economy, you put up a proverbial wall. We basically try and halt trade with foreign competitors like China where we can. So this would be way less investment, way less bilateral trade. Things like t-shirts and coffee mugs and prices would increase tremendously across the board. So that's large-scale decoupling, where it would sort of be like a global divorce, right? De-risking, on the other hand, is identifying critical supply chains that we need access to in order to keep our national security and our economy safe and sound. And so when the administration came in, I think they were actually pretty astute in doing this. They identified four critical supply chains that we needed access to. And this is also a hard lesson learned from COVID. 
but they identified critical minerals, semiconductors, medical supply chains, and batteries. And they said, look, we really need to make sure that these supply chains are not vulnerable to weaponization by a foreign jurisdiction. If you look at the way that Russia handled gas supplies to Germany, that's very scary. And the administration doesn't want that to happen to the United States, and particularly these four critical sectors, but also others, I think, that are under discussion. At the same time, what's interesting is that China is looking at Western and allied de-risking policies, and they're also attempting their own de-risking strategy. So they also don't want to be at the whim of a foreign government that could turn off the tap on tech that they really need. And so again, emerges this fine balance of how do you get controls right that doesn't incentivize a total decoupling between the two? Because one of the attributes of a total decoupling is less information. And I think that's pretty dangerous. We really want to know what everyone is up to, where the demand signals are. And that gives us a better lay of the land for the ultimate intentions of foreign competitors. Emily Benson, a lot to think about. And I know you're going to be watching all of this closely. So can't wait to have you back to talk about it more. Thanks again. Thank you, Andrew.